iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Joining us today are The Times' very own James Gearbrandt, who we'll speak to later, and right now, the Chief Football Writer, Henry Winter. Later on, we'll look ahead to another busy weekend of Premier League action, which includes a mouth-watering tie as Tottenham travel to the champions Manchester City. But first, to the Super Cup. Liverpool beat Chelsea 5-4 in a penalty shootout after the tie finished 2-all after extra time. So, Henry, what does that win mean, do you think, for Liverpool? Well, I think it keeps the momentum, their love of Europe. I mean, you saw the amount of fans they had out there. It was about 6,500 throughout from Merseyside. And then it just showed how huge they are, as if we needed reminding, how huge they are around the world. Because Liverpool fans literally flew in from all over the world. So I think that was just a reminder to the club, if they needed reminding, of this huge interest and passion there is for, for Liverpool. I think for I think it showed, you know, on the sort of the negative side, and then Gregor being a form player would be far more technically equipped to, to, to explain it than I would. But there there's still things that need working on in the defence. I mean, Jurgen Klopp was on the touchline going spare with his defence in the first half, particularly when Pulisic was running at them and Kante was running midfield. I think I think the main thing they take from it, apart from another trophy and a chance to update the, the champions' wall at Melwood, is how much they need Firmino. Because when Firmino came on at half-time, he tilted the balance back towards Liverpool because Jorginho had been playing, obviously, as he does. He'd been playing playing deep. He was getting things ticking over. Whereas Firmino, when he came in in that sort of false nine position for Liverpool, he sort of squeezed the space a little bit around um, Chelsea's sort of deep-lying central midfielders like Jorginho. And and then the other two up front for Liverpool, as, as we saw so spectacularly last season, Sadio Mane and Mo Salah, they were in their best positions and they were flying again. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Firmino is just so important. I mean, when he created a goal within three minutes, he was that work rate he's got, the pressing, the touch, the movement, everything about him. He's, you know, he's one of the best players in the world. Henry there mentioned, Gregor, that obviously you were a former player. So maybe you can give us your take on it from a professional standard. Uh, have we learned anything more about both of these sides? It's interesting that Henry brought that up about the, the defence. It seems to be 
in the last three games it has been an issue it does seem that Liverpool are playing a higher line everyone's discussed that and they do seem to be getting played through a little bit a little bit more easily and it was interesting in, in Paul Joyce's piece today that Liverpool have faced 40 shots in the last uh, in their opening three games compared to half of that uh, in their opening three games last season against less lesser opposition albeit but there does seem to be it does seem noticeable that they're playing a higher line so far this season and and they're not entirely comfortable. You can see this even on the looks on Van Dijk's face uh, and, and, and all the players' faces. They don't seem quite happy with that, that setup so far. Yeah, definitely. And, and fair play to uh, Frank Lampard. He, he noted that. Uh, he brought uh, Tammy Abraham on in the, in the second half and you know his pace he was getting behind uh, that sense. As you say, they had, a, they had a high line. I still think they're trying to sort of work out I mean, it's a nice option to have, but who should play alongside Van Dijk? Matip, as we saw towards the end last season, looks a very good combination. Joe Gomez is obviously sure. I got the impression, I was in the press conference afterwards, I got the impression that um, Klopp played Gomez at right back because he wanted someone who was more sort of defensively sound uh, than Trent Alexander-Arnold. Look, who's a good full-back, and he's, we, we know how good he is going forward. So I still think there's a sort of little bit of juggling to, to do in that defence. But, you know, one or two issues, obviously, Alisson being unfortunately injured for sort of five or six weeks, but... You know, so that natural understanding that they would have and they built up last season obviously wasn't there so much, particularly in the first half. But look, Adrian's a, a good goalkeeper. And when you've got a player like Virgil van Dijk, who is just, you know, it's just an awesome, probably the best centre-half in the world, then uh, I don't think that people are going to be panicking too much. But Klopp is such a perfectionist. You could see the way he was shouting at his defence in, in the first half. But again, as ever with these things, we focus on the negative. We've also got to celebrate how good Chelsea were, particularly in the first half with Kante running the show. Pulisic, who's, who's very young, but you know what a talent he looks, particularly coming in off the left and sort of working between the lines as, uh, as, as he did for Giroud's goal. So, um, yeah. But look, there's clearly work to be done for Liverpool. I don't necessarily want to focus on the negatives, but I'm going to have to bring up a point that Tony Cascarino made in the Times today where he's spoken about Chelsea's youngsters, uh, in particular Mason Mount and Tammy Abraham. He says they're simply not yet ready, that they need experience alongside them. Uh, I mean, for me, Mason Mount in the last two games for Chelsea has been particularly impressive. I agree. Um, and I was a bit surprised that he has singled them out in the sense of saying they're not yet ready. Perhaps he means not ready to be sort of relied upon. Um, Chelsea definitely looked far better. And, and I think Frank Lampard deserves a lot of credit for the way he set up the team. It was an intelligent approach after a 4-0 defeat, which was a hugely chastening start for, for, for a manager. But I think, yeah, I think I agree. I think Mason, Mason Mount, certainly when he came on, he, he was very unlucky not to, not to get a goal. And Tammy Abraham, he, he missed the penalty that will knock his confidence a little bit but I think this season is going to be make or break for him he's got an opportunity to play regular football and I think he's got to take it because he's he's flourished at championship level, level scored lots of goals but he's not quite done it in the Premier League yet and I think that's that one is a little bit more open to, to interpretation to see what happens in the future Henry, we know, of course, that Frank Lampard is going to have to use some of the younger players at Chelsea right now. But where do you stand on Mason Mount and Tammy Abraham from what you've seen so far of them? Well, I think Chelsea's best two players in pre-season were Mason Mount and, and Ross Barkley. Ross Barkley, obviously, slightly older. Um, I think Mason Mount's a fantastic talent. I thought he was he was good at Old Trafford. I think it wasn't just Lampard who was surprised by Jose Mourinho's criticism of, of, of Mason Mount. I thought, as Gregor was saying, he was excellent when he came on. 
in a, arguably a sort of slightly unfamiliar position um, out and, and cutting in. I just think he's a he's a terrific young prospect. And I think the important thing for Chelsea is they've got their, these options. I mean, everyone sort of rewinds back to Alan Hansen's comments of you won't win anything with kids. And obviously that, the class of 92 were fantastic. The class of 92 had a lot of experience alongside them as well. Um, and I think Mason Mount will learn. T- T- Tammy Abraham will learn. I mean, look, things might have been different for his confidence if that incredible shot against uh, Manchester United had been one inch to the right and, and gone in rather than hitting the, uh, the, the post. Mm. So, look, we, we can't spend all our life saying, oh, um, Chelsea's got to start playing these players. They've got this fantastic academy isn't it great if they can actually sort of cross the road and get involved in the first team? And the first sign of them not necessarily delivering in a game, saying, right, let's send them back to, uh, back to the creche. Got to give them a chance, particularly Mason Mount. I really do think he is a first-team Chelsea player for a few years to come. Cammy Abraham, as Greville says, you know, he's, there are things he's got to work on and he's, he's finishing, but that pace is frightening. His attitude is the highest class. And I think I think he's got a future at Chelsea, definitely. But you know, let, let, let's give him a few games. But I quite like the way that Frank Lampard played it in the uh, in the build-up. He started, kept talking about youth. He kept talking about uh, N'Golo Kante having an injury concern, and then he went with an experienced team with Kante playing one of his best performances for Chelsea in recent years. So I, I think, look, Mason Mount and Tammy Abraham will, will definitely get games. And the great thing is, is that I think that shows Chelsea fans, some of them at the airport, they're really upbeat. You know, the second successive de- de- defeat, whether it's a defeat, it's a draw or whatever, um, they could see that Lampard, they, they liked the way that Lampard was getting them to play. They liked the fact he was playing one or two mind games in the press conference. They liked the way that he sort of changed it and would bring some young players on. And the fact that despite all this sort of, you know, the, 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 the headlines or whatever, and it's going to be interesting when they, now they've got this appeal, whether they can actually get one of the, um, uh, the transfer windows back mm. uh, because they'll clearly use the Manchester City precedent, the fact that they got away with the fine. I know, as Martin Siegel was writing in the Times today, it's, it, it's slightly different offences, but I think it might only be a, you know, a one-window ban. So then Lampard can go again. But look, in terms of young talent, I know it's not homegrown, but Pulisic looks a real star. So I think there'll be a blend going forward of you know, experience and young players. Henry, from Liverpool's point of view, Oxley Chamberlain uh, had had a pretty difficult first half. Rob, uh, Firmino really changed changed the game for them when he came on in the second half. What what do you think the future holds for Oxley Chamberlain? What 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 do you think is his best position in that team for Liverpool? Central midfield, pushing on. I just think that when he picks up the ball, he gives. He gives any teams something a bit different. That ability to run with the ball, to get beyond defenders. I think he's got a he's got that natural enthusiasm. I thought he he started to wide left last night. Yeah. I didn't think it particularly suited him. Um, but I think also he's coming back from a very serious injury. And look, you'd, you'd know yourself. It, it takes a little bit of time. Whether it's a confidence thing, I mean, he's a naturally very bullion, intelligent individual anyway. Um, but I think that will take a bit of time. But also, if you play him in the centre, that is an area that Liverpool really need to to, to strengthen. I mean, they were hoping that Naby Keita would would be the answer to fit in there, that sort of dynamic goal-scoring midfielder, not quite a Gerrard, but sort of producing some of those sort of bursts in the energy and the goals. Naby Keita is looking a little bit brittle physically, and he's got to show that he he can string a run of games together. I think Oxlade-Chamberlain obviously has had that bad injury, but I think if he a fit, sharp, 
firing Oxlade Chamberlain with his pace restored is a starting midfielder for uh, for Liverpool. And Gregor, let me ask you then: How important is Sadio Mane to this Liverpool team? Well, I think we saw he's he's uh, he's vital, and and there's obviously been a, a lot of worry this summer and in, in recent weeks about about the length of uh, his holidays. <laughs> I mean, I think for the last uh, he said for the last seven years he's not had much more than twenty days holidays. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, God Almighty, I couldn't imagine. <laughs> I desperately needed my <laughs> two months holiday every summer. So yeah, he's just he's uh, just rapier quick. He's 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 just a real threat for Liverpool um, and a different sort of proposition to, to anyone else they have I think in that in that front three so they're really going to hope that he's he stays fit and healthy and, and uh, he's, he's firing all, all cylinders this season and I suppose Henry we need to talk about uh, Adrian uh, and the piece that you've written about uh, adding his name to that list of Liverpool's Istanbul heroes his Liverpool career quite remarkable <laughs> yeah it's absolutely superb I mean it's you know it's come about in unfortunate circumstances and it was quite emotional when, when Alisson was limping around the pitch the other night against Norwich City, having got injured because he's so loved by uh, by the players, by the by the supporters, and Klopp obviously gave him a huge hug. So I think everyone would wish him a, a speedy recovery. But Adrian's shown in shootouts before. I think it was a point that Joycey was was making in the in the Times about you know the fact that he's he's, he's done it for for West Ham. I think he I think he even scored against Everton in a in a shootout as well. So he's clearly a, a confident individual. Um, I thought the penalties were, were all sort of pretty impressive. Mm. Uh, again, coming back to Mason Mount, you know what? A, I mean, that was quite nerve-wracking, particularly with Adrian on the line bouncing around trying to do a Jersey Dudek or Bruce Grobbler. We're talking um, Liverpool goalkeepers of, of yesteryear, and uh, Mason Mount kept his cool. But no, Adrian is—he's also, from what everyone says, is, is actually quite a sort of strong character. You could see the way he was celebrating afterwards, you know, in the dressing room as well when when Liverpool released some footage from in there. So uh, absolutely, Allison is a is a miss because he's in the top three goalkeepers in the world. But Adrian's a pretty impressive understudy. And um, there have been a lot of calls, Henry, uh, about this game suggesting we could actually have a 39th Premier League match as a result of seeing Liverpool take on Chelsea on foreign soil. Where do you stand on that? Do you think this was a good advert, that there is a possibility of having that 39th game? Well, it's a fantastic advertisement for English football. Um, You've got two teams going for it over two hours and then an absorbing penalty shootout. I mean, it certainly wasn't a friendly. It was very competitive. Um, there was a sort of mix of fans in the stadium of the sort of the English fans who who travelled out, and then fans from all over the world. Um, so the Premier League would have looked at that. Okay, it's a UEFA event, but they would have looked at that and thought, "Wow, can you imagine if we could stage this on a regular basis?" I have been absolutely against uh, the 39th game from the word go. The moment Scudamore suggested it, and it really damaged Scudamore's reputation, not simply amongst journalists like me and Paul Hayward and Ollie Holt, people like that who were having a go at him for even contemplating it, but amongst fans, amongst... I mean, even even if Seth Blatter considers a plan too greedy, you know that it's really <laughs> yeah. beyond the pale. I think it's I think it's offensive to, to the fans who are the lifeblood of the games, i.e. the match-going fans in this country, going to, going to matches through thick and thin when their team's struggling. They're the ones who go. So suddenly... 
for the Premier League to say, oh, actually, the Manchester derby is going to be in Manila this year because we can make a lot of money there and their fans out there, the two clubs, that's fine. But let them see them on, you know, Manchester United or Manchester City go on tour and play in one of these sort of pre-season competitions out there. Then fair enough. That's where the Premier League can do it. But we can't become like the NFL and move franchises around, which will be the next thing. Having said that, you look at the owners, you look at the background of a lot of them in American sports, you look at the, uh, the desire for money, wages going up, um, transfer fees going up. They want to sort of, you know, cover their costs on that. They look at what's happening with the um, European Clubs Association in terms of them wanting to expand the, uh, the, the, the Champions League. Uh, I, I can see the 39th game very much coming back on the, um, on the horizon and we've got to fight it. Just one last thing on the on the Super Cup, and in some ways I don't want to talk about it, but have to make mention of the referee, Stephanie Frappart, the first female to take charge of a, a major men's game uh, in terms of a final. A great performance overall, really, from her, Henry. Terrific performance. Physically, she kept up with a high-tempo English game over two hours, under a lot of pressure, under a lot of scrutiny. I mean, well... When the announcement was made, everyone was getting very excited and a lot of us just shrugged. I mean, we know she's a good referee. We saw that in the Women's World Cup final. Um, I don't think the, the quality of refereeing, certainly in, in, in England at the moment and in certainly parts of Europe, is that great. So any help is absolutely vital. I would love to see her referee in the Premier League. I can't see it happening, but I, can, I would love to see her go to Champions League final. It is the 21st century the last time I looked. Why can't someone as talented as her? What I thought was interesting, and maybe it was a compliment to her, is that there was actually a little bit of dissent from the players. It was like, this is such an intense game, and they did turn on her a little bit. But actually, all her decisions were good. I thought the Tammy Abraham decision was... I thought she slightly gambled on it with uh, Adrian's challenge. I I don't see how she could necessarily have told... Um, that there was contact, how much contact there was. But then VAR obviously decreed that it wasn't a clear and obvious mistake. Yeah. So, you know, they, they, they went with her call. So I thought that was great. Henry, what do you... Played a lot what, of advantage. What do you... What, what's your feelings about that? I mean, I think any of us, that, any of us who watched the, the replays would think it was not a penalty. But because of the clear and obvious factor, they've, they they not to overturn the decision. And when you contrast that with the offside r- ruling at the weekend with Raheem Sterling, um, which doesn't need to be clear and obvious, and that's so kind of uh, factual and based on millimetres. What, what do you feel? That feels like a bit of an inconsistency there. There's a complete inconsistency. You're completely right. And I think it's going to take a season for it actually for the comp- individual competitions to get their consistency right, but also to have an element of consistency between different competitions. Because I mean, we were sitting in the press box last night going, is VAR actually here? Little evidence of it so far. And when it is applied, it's applied differently from in the Premier League. I think it's going to be confusing for, for, for some of the players when they do step from Premier League style refereeing on it uh, into the Champions League. I think eventually it will all calm down. I think that, that we've got to have technology in, in, in this game. Again, it's, you know, it is the 21st century. It is ridiculous that the one person in the stadium who has the most important decision to make, the referee, doesn't have immediate access to... Like, the fans are streaming. I've got a monitor in, in, in front of me. The broadcasters have. So I think it's important, but it's just a balance. Personally, I would love there to be a one-minute rule so the decision cannot be made in, within a minute 
um, then you go with the, the umpire's call, as they call it in cricket. So, look, it, it, it needs to be... I mean, the, the, the sympathy I have, obviously, is fans in the stadium, they need proper communication, absolutely. But also, with the players, when do players celebrate? There's another issue. If you have a sort of three-minute wait, like you did at one of the matches at the weekend, I think it was a City game, then the play, what are the players doing? Are, are their muscles going to stiffen? Is, is this is a long, old season with a lot of games. And, you know, if we've got players going down to so having pulled a hamstring because they've waited three minutes and have, you know, have not kept warm, are, they going to, are managers going to put bicycles on the side of the pitch uh, as you get in sort of some sports and just tell the players to sort of come off and just sort of keep ticking over while VAR makes its decision? We can't have those sort of breaks. So if, it, if it's a minute and they can do it quicker, um, but there's one final thing they've got to address, the quality of officiating, particularly in England over the last sort of seven, eight years since the Webb Clattenburg era, has not been great. So we need to invest more money in that as well as in technology. And you mentioned the, the celebrations there. One last point on the whole VAR debate. The the winning penalty kick. I mean, there was pictures on social media that yeah. came out and yeah. and we saw. So imagine, obviously that, that's not clear and obvious. So by the current rules, that should not have been brought back. But imagine that moment with Klopp running off down the line and uh, all the players running to to celebrate with Adrian, who had a, it's a, an amazing moment for him. Imagine that had been pulled back. And, and, and by the letter of... The sort of the ruling it should have been. Mm. It's just it just doesn't feel like it's quite. As you say, it'll, it'll take time to get up to speed, but there are inconsistencies there, and and really they're sort of defining the football matches still. Yeah, and I mean, our, cele- our players gonna have to celebrate twice. You know? <laughs> yeah. it's, it, it's 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 very strange. I mean, you, look, you've been there. You must know when a, when a, when you've scored a goal or one of your teammates Not has very scored often. a goal. That, <laughs> sure. Well, it makes it even more important that instant celebration. Um, you know, can't, we cannot take that away from players and, and just turn football into a laboratory. Henry, thank you very much. My pleasure. Henry, thank Thanks, you. Henry. Really appreciate that. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, so it's all looking very rosy for Liverpool right now, but is everything okay north of the border, Gregor? Celtic unexpectedly crashed out of Champions League qualification. They lost to Dan Petrescu's Romanian champions, FC 
Cluj. I don't know where to begin with Celtic in Europe, but recently, Gregor, it's not been a very happy, um, happy tale for them. No, this is the fourth time in the last six seasons, I believe, that they've not made it to the Champions League proper. And in that time, they've lost qualifiers to Lugia Warsaw, Malmo, Maribor, AEG Athens. These are not clubs that really strike fear into the heart of, of most uh, of, of Europe's strongest teams. And, and that's the thing, Celtic have a history and, and a heritage of being among the, the big clubs in Europe. Um, and the sad fact is that's no longer the case. The one thing is, all those clubs... The, the the disparity, the financial disparity between Celtic and, and, and Europe's richest clubs now is, is huge. But the same can be said for all those opponents who they've lost to. Um, I believe that the combined playing budget for all 14 teams in the remaining top flight is still less than Celtic's. Wow. So that kind of gives you an idea of, of uh, how sort of embarrassing that defeat was. I think also when Celtic do reach the, the group stages, I think in the last two seasons in, in, in six that they did qualify, they've they won one in 12 games and there were defeats like 5-0, 7-0 and 7-1. So it's really, that's really pretty striking. I think mm. Celtic can no longer really be classed as a European, a Champions League level football club. That's very, that's very tough. strong. That's tough tough to say, yeah. I mean, I'm, I was brought up a Celtic fan as well, so it's not easy for me to say that. Mm. <laughs> and I think the other thing is we have to sort of be wary some of the fact that Rangers are certainly improving under Steven Gerrard. When Neil Lennon replaced Brendan Rodgers, Brendan Rodgers was always going to be very hard to replace, but Neil Lennon uh, felt like a bit like a step back into the past rather than into the future. And there were some, some big talking points from, from the defeat on Tuesday. He left £10 million worth of defenders on the bench. That's a lot of money for Celtic to have spent. And played Callum McGregor at left-back, who's one of the, the most sort of dynamic attacking midfielders and it just did not work so there are sort of the early rumblings of uh, discontent about about Neil Lennon and, mm. and obviously there is the spectre of of nine in a row and ten in a row on the horizon and and it is true to say if 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 you offered Celtic supporters the choice of Champions League qualification this year next year and the year, year after that for a ten in a row they would take the ten in a row right now so um as as sort of prestigious as it is to get into that that Champions League group stage and play against uh, all the, all the European greats, that is a real kind of uh, carrot dangling on the horizon for for Celtic and and uh, that's the thing. But it's going to be tough to tough to get there now because Rangers are like I say they're in the ascendancy. Well, Dan Petrescu is unhappy that uh, his side, who, as we mentioned, are the Romanian champions, uh, are having to actually go through qualifying to reach the group stages. He thinks that UEFA should consider a change in the format. Likewise, you could suggest that Celtic, Scottish champions, they've had to start their season very early to, to get through ultimately and fail in the Champions League qualification. Do you think Dan Petrescu is sort of right with what he's thinking, that all champions perhaps should be getting through to the group stage proper? Absolutely, but the likelihood of it happening is <laughs> is very slim because, I mean, if anything, the, the opposite is going to happen. There, you know, there's huge talks about um, sort of solidifying the, the places in, the, in this elite competition for the, the biggest clubs in Europe, um, regardless of where they finish in the league. That's mm. that's the direction of travel rather than than uh, worrying about about clubs the size of well, not the size of, but from the leagues, the size of of Scottish football and Romanian football. So. Absolutely. Uh, the teams who win their titles in their country should be in this competition. 
Um, but that's not the direction of travel, so it's not going to happen anytime soon. And the um, other disappointing factor in all of this is that Celtic going out early, coupled with Kilmarnock as well, failing in their European bid this season. I know you've still got Rangers and, and Aberdeen in Europa League qualification, Celtic dropping into the Europa League as a result of their defeat, but it does affect the coefficient for Scottish teams because of their performances in general in Europe recently. They're not doing the business, therefore that's only why they have one team in the Champions League. For Absolutely. Example. Yep, it's not going to make that any any better or any easier for, for the future. Um, and it's not going to do any any good for Celtic's uh, finances either. Although they do, they have been run very prudently. Um, in recent years, I think they've got about £40 million in the bank in the last, last accounts. Um, obviously the sale of Kieran Tierney brought in another £25 million. I realise people are saying that that's kind of that money gone. Chris Sutton, one almost, of those. Yes, <laughs> no surprise there. It almost, it almost, that's almost true. Um, um, and but Celtic have brought in like about hundred million pounds in in recent years from from player sales, um, and their turnover is about hundred million pounds. And Rangers are, are the next closest with about thirty million pound turnover. So their dominance in Scotland, they're sort of the size of that football club. They really have very little to complain about when they're they're talking about. European sort of their how how small they are in comparison now to some of the European uh, giants. Let's take a look at one of the standout fixtures in the Premier League this weekend. Manchester City hosts Tottenham on Saturday evening. James Gearbrandt now joins us. It is the first time, let's not forget, that the teams have met since last season's incredible Champions League, which saw Raheem Sterling's winner ruled out by VAR, so not a winner. There is an assumption that it is always good to get some of the big teams out of the way at the beginning of the season. West Ham might well argue against that after their opening day 5-0 loss at home to City. James, have City shown already they are the team to beat then this season? My view is that, that City um, sort of came into the season as, as very much the team to beat. I mean, I, I do feel that they are the, the strongest team in the league. And, and yes, I suppose you'd have to say that their, their opening day performance kind of was impressive and, and sort of confirmed our, our sort of, you know, our impression of them as a sort of, you know, attacking juggernaut, a team that, so many ways to, uh, you know, a team that are just so good at, at creating chances. Hypothetically, you sort of might always think it's better to play teams at, at the start of the season. And I, I guess sort of logically there is probably something in that because teams, I guess, kind of get up to speed through the season and you sort of rehearse those those little combinations, particularly in, in City's case. But I, I, I do think City look, um, yeah, I think they're, they're, they're quite a formidable team to face even at, at this early kind of stage. James, from Tottenham's perspective, um, last weekend against Aston Villa, they were kind of transformed in the second half with with the introduction of Christian Eriksen. Obviously, his future is still a little bit up in the air, but um, do you think really Tottenham's chances of success will hinge on whether or not he is going to start or not, and whether he's in the sort of the right frame of mind to do so? Yes, I think that's fair, particularly as I think uh, Son and, and Dele Alli are both out, I think, I'm right in saying. I do think that's, um, that, that Ericsson will be, will be important in this game. And what about Tottenham themselves then? Do you think they need to make a statement so early on in this season to sort of prove to everybody else that they are title challengers? I'm sort of a bit wary of the idea of sort of statement wins. I think it's sort of very sort of tempting to think that, you know, when the big teams meet, 
you know, that, that that's kind of, that those matches are sort of really decisive in, in, in the title race. But I think actually kind of the real lesson of the past few seasons is, is that actually titles are really, are really sort of won by relentless form against across the 38 game season and, and I suppose particularly against the kind of non, the non-elite teams. You know, it's about just really remorselessly kind of racking up points. I mean, for one thing, Man City already know that I mean, Tottenham beat them, you know, a few months ago. So I don't, I don't think that Tottenham, if Tottenham to win this game, it would necessarily sort of be a kind of big quantum shift. Well, what about Manchester City and the, what you've seen of them then from their first game in the Premier League, that thumping 5-0 win over West Ham? Some were surprised that Bernardo Silva didn't play, didn't play um, or didn't certainly start for, for Manchester City. Um, are you surprised that he wasn't in that starting eleven? Um, I'm not hugely surprised, to be honest. We kind of we, we know that that Pep does this, don't we? We're, we're all kind of really familiar, I think, with Man City's squad depth and, and Pep's kind of sort of unique way of marshalling it. You know, the so-called Pep roulette. Although I do think Bernardo, I, I would sort of expect Bernardo to start this game because I think he's he's part of their Guardiola's kind of strongest eleven. But I, I do think we'll continue to see Pep sort of rotate and surprise, and, and I actually think. You know, we could see some some really quite funky stuff from from Pep this season. So, Ooh, I, like um, <laughs> I think it was interesting that uh, Pep said after the weekend's game that sort of the competition between um, Silva and and Mares is is going to be something that's that's really important to keep every and and for every player, every player in every position to have someone who's who's chomping at the bit to get into the team to maintain the the high standards that that they've set in the past two seasons and um i think i think that's that's really interesting i think mares mares obviously took his his opportunity and was a real real handful against west ham um and so now it's it's probably going to be over to over to silva and, and it's the same for every every player they've got to perform or else there's someone of of real quality waiting waiting on the sidelines to take their chance that is quite interesting because I, I I wasn't I wasn't aware of that quote, but I I sort of you wouldn't necessarily think that Bernardo Silva would would sort of be in direct competition with with Mares. I think obviously I expect Mares is going to is going to play a lot this season, given that you know um, Sane is, is is out with a, when they see injury, and in you sort of you might sort of expect. Bernardo to play more in, in the sort of and he certainly has played. We know that Pep has deployed him on, on the wing on, on, on a few occasions, but you sort of might see his kind of front line position more as, as being one of those the three eight roles, the sort of um, you know, the, the, the slightly more advanced of the of the three central midfielders. So yeah, I'm quite I'm I'm slightly intrigued by by that quote. I wasn't I wasn't aware of that. Well James, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thanks, James. Thanks, Natalie. Cheers, Berger. We've still got a little bit of time, so why don't we just focus on the EFL that's coming up this weekend. And, Gregor, what are you looking out for? Leeds United are, have again started the season uh, really full of full of promise and uh, Bielsa has got them playing in the, with exactly the same tempo and, and dynamism. Um, they were unfortunately not to beat Forrest uh, last weekend. I think they were... They nicked, nicked a point for us, definitely. Um, and Leeds go to Wigan this weekend, so it'll be very interesting to see if they can continue in that form. Um, also, we have two um, of the relegated teams from the Premier League facing up on Friday night. Huddersfield play Fulham. And Huddersfield have had a very difficult time without a win in all competitions since February. Um, they lost to Lincoln City in the Carabao Cup on Tuesday night, uh, which followed defeat to Derby on the opening day. And and a draw, to, draw against QPR at the weekend. So 
I think Jan, Jan Seward's possibly soon going to be coming under a little bit of pressure mm. and he's he's actually quite if you I don't know if you notice he's quite spiky in in the press afterwards he's uh he kind of had a, almost a little bit of a fallout with with uh Liam Rossini uh who's joined Derby of course yeah. uh after the game after the defeat on the opening day so he's he's not a great loser it doesn't seem and he's actually doing quite a lot of it unfortunately <laughs> he walked into a hard job don't get me wrong yeah. but Huddersfield have, have have added to the squad and uh, they're expected with the parachute payments and, and just having been relegated, they're expected to be up there and it's been a, a difficult start for them. So it's going to be a difficult game against Fulham too, who who uh, have got probably the best squad in the Championship. With regards though to Huddersfield, I mean, they've lost Aaron Moy, haven't they? That's a big that's a big miss. A big, big, big loss, yes. Um, he's a Premier League player though um, and... It was all. It was kind of surprising that he hadn't left over the summer. Anyway, I think he was probably of all the players um, in the Premier League, he was the one who stepped up the most and looked the most comfortable on that that at that level. So it's no surprise that he's left. But um, he, certainly they have they have other problems. They're not they're not really scoring goals, and um, certainly against Derby they looked shambolic in the, at the back. Some of the, the goals they conceded were really really poor. So um, there's, they're going to have to rectify that that pretty quickly. Mm, big game then for Huddersfield. And uh, there was an announcement earlier on today from League Two that Sol Campbell has left Macclesfield after eight months in charge. Uh, took over in, in November 2018. The club were in all sorts of trouble. But, Greg, I mean, he did enough to, to steer them well clear in the end. Yeah, I think anyone who um, is going to be given Sol Campbell any sort of stick for, for throwing in the towel here really should check themselves because it's been an unenviable un- 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 set of circumstances um, players were very rarely paid on time some are still owed uh, their, their salaries from, from over the summer and and previous months um, the the owners the owners there are, are sort of one of the most perplexing in, in the whole football league I think there seem to be who knows what their their, their their agenda is they don't really seem to have any interest in, in the running of the football club and they put out a very strange um, statement just the other day, sort of criticising the players who have have uh, supported a, a winding up order, um, because they've still not been paid. But these are guys who are playing in League Two on very modest salaries, um, who who can't pay their rent or um, are running into debt, and they need their money. So um, the football club really, it was very strange for them to come out and criticise and name the the six individuals who've supported this case. And I, I don't know whether that was the final straw for Saul Campbell, but. Um, I mean, he was backed in in the signing of some players on on deadline day, but I think he probably recognises that this is this is going to be a another up, uphill struggle. And last season was was a minor miracle really to keep them up um, with one of the smallest budgets in the league, um, and from from the position he found found the team when he when he joined in November. So um, I don't think there should be any criticism of, of Saul Campbell for this, and I think he's actually done enough in his time in that job to show that he deserves another opportunity. In, in better circumstances too. Well, yes, we'll see what happens then with Sol Campbell, as we will with Macclesfield. That is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, James Gearbrand and Henry Winter. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We'll be back on Monday with all the fallout from the weekend's action.
The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. 